I just loved the idea that I would never be sitting behind a desk and that I would always be going from idea to idea and interview to interview and opportunity to opportunity and problem to problem and jumping around all over the city or all over the world that I imagined that I would one day be doing. You're listening to Create Community. I'm your host, Marsha Drucker. On this podcast, we're exploring the human side of community. I'm chatting with some amazing community builders to define what community truly means. Joining me today is Chris Carter, and this episode is a fascinating look inside the community of a serial entrepreneur. Chris is the executive director of the Office of Innovation and Entrepreneurship at the Schulich School of Business. He leads the development of accelerator services for the university and various programs and partnerships throughout the wider innovation ecosystem. Chris believes that with crisis comes opportunity. When COVID struck, he spun up the digital Main Street Shop Here program to create online stores for small businesses and employ hundreds of students. He shares how he's navigated through 2020 to make massive impact. So let's jump right into it. Hi, Chris. Welcome to Create Community. Super excited to chat with you today. Hey, Marcia. It's great to be here. I've been waiting such a fan of everything that you've been doing, and I was just waiting for my turn. (laughs) Thank you. I'm, I'm really excited for this as well. Also a little bit nervous. I feel like I get a little bit more nervous for the episodes where I know the guest personally, and you're somebody that I've known for a while, and I consider you a mentor and somebody that I really look up to. But I'm really excited to dig into your journey and your story with community. I think it's a really fascinating career path and journey that you've had that led you to where you are today and how you see and go about building community. So to jump into it, I'd love to get an understanding of how my guests actually became community builders or got to where they are today. I don't think anybody ever sets out, you know, thinking that they're going to be a community builder. So let's go all the way back to high school. What were you like in high school? And like, what were some of your interests or extracurriculars? And how did you find your sense of belonging at such a young age? I was a mix of so many things back in high school. But I really come from like a, a story where both my parents were teachers. And so our home was filled with activities and organizing and planning. And there was never a moment where we were ever sitting still. And that carried through all the way from being a kid all the way into high school where I was the editor of the yearbook and I was playing on the hockey team and I was painting the mural for the school musical, but I was also singing solo in it at the same time and a member of the prefects and on and on the captain of the curling team. And (laughs) I was just the busiest person of all time. I think that's probably what I got voted when when I graduated (laughs) at the end of high school about being the the busiest, uh, the busiest grad. But I was also surrounded by growing up in the United Church uh, and being with uh, community leaders who were very active in terms of doing things to to give back, to organize, you know, drives of collecting figure skates to send to Indigenous people in, in the northern regions of Canada and organizing events and fundraisers and all kinds of things. So I can never remember a time where I wasn't surrounded by busy, active, motivated adults doing something with a purpose. That is so cool. I feel like what's that saying that like the the busiest people get the most done and we're like, if you want something done, give it to a busy person. I feel like that's definitely you and that you got to meet so many cool people, I'm sure through what you were doing. So it's really incredible. 
What did you end up studying in post-secondary? Yeah, well, that that actually sort of drove me to wanting, because I was always doing so many different things, I was really searching for a career where I would never sit still. You know, I, I thought about all kinds of things, but the career that I eventually settled on was being a journalist. So back in high school, I actually worked hard to get myself through high school fast enough that by the time it got to the final term, all my regular credits were done. And I went to work on a co-op placement at the Scarborough Mirror. Uh, I grew up in Scarborough uh, here in uh, in Ontario. And um, I went to do a a co-op placement at the Mirror as a reporter when I was, you know, in my late teens. And uh, I just loved the idea that I would never be sitting behind a desk and that I would always be going from idea to idea and interview to interview and opportunity to opportunity and problem to problem and jumping around all over the city or all over the world that I imagined that I would one day be doing. So from there, I did my co-op placement, got my my taste of being a reporter, even at that early age, and then uh, applied to journalism school at Ryerson. You know, there were many things as a journalist that I, t- I took away and have crafted how I've approached building my networks, building community, and being an entrepreneur. How did you end up becoming an entrepreneur? What was that path like? Like, Did you ever do anything entrepreneurial while you were growing up? Or was that spark sort of created in you a little bit later while you were in journalism? It was actually sparked from two things that sort of collided at the same time. One was that from a very early age, I did not like having a boss. And even in the summer and part-time jobs that I worked at, I often found myself, you know, kind of like conflicted where I would want to do things differently in the places that I worked, or I'd want to break the rules um, in order to um, make things go faster or more efficiently um, in really innovative ways. And people were always telling me no and telling me to do it the way it was supposed to be done. So I already had this piece inside me that realized I really didn't like working for anybody else. And then when I graduated, already the media business was facing a challenging time. This was back in around 1995. And so it was very difficult to get a job where you would stay in a core city, in my case, like Toronto. And I was going to have to leave and go into other parts of the country and leave my family behind and leave people, friends that were close to me behind. So I had this idea, what if I created my own magazine and I owned it? Then I won't have a boss because I'll be my own boss. I don't have to leave the city because I'll actually build it in Toronto. And I started mapping out my plan for that. But I realized that buying newsprint to print my publication would bankrupt my young self. While I was thinking about that, I realized that I had a, had a friend who was always talking about how we didn't need paper anymore for any of our publications. And one day they would all be on this thing called the internet. And that was the spark that led me to hunt him down. And in fact, my first great entrepreneurial moment was where I'll date myself for a minute and say that back then there was no Facebook or LinkedIn. Most of us did not have cell phones or even email addresses. So if you worked with someone and then everyone went their separate ways or the publication we were at together actually folded in that case, there really wasn't much of a way to find each other in the (laughs) world when people would disappear or disband. So the only way that I found him was uh, by sitting with the phone book. I called Crawford's for four days sitting with the phone book. And uh, finally, I found his mom, Louise, under the L's. And I always wish that her name was Abigail because that I would have found her on day one instead of finding her on day four. So um, I went over to his house that night. He showed me the internet. And from there, we went into business together and created our first publication online. It was a sports magazine. 
That is unbelievable. I can totally picture you doing that, but <laughs> tell me a little bit about that first business and how did it lead you to the company that you started with uh, Thin Data? It was a bit of a, a winding path, but what happened was that everybody liked to read the magazine. It was it was an alternative kind of view of the sports world that combined, if you can believe it, kind of progressive left-wing political views with sports and the analysis of sports and the industry and how things were being done. I mean, nowadays would fit right in, but back then it was, it was pretty alternative and pretty weird, but it built up an audience around the world. But the thing was, I couldn't get any advertising for it because people would say, do you know who any of these people are who are watching it? And this was way before all the tracking systems and methodologies and platforms were in place. So I would say, well, there's these things called hits on a hit counter that sit on the page. And every time someone lands on the page, it ticks up person by person. But none of the advertisers were impressed by that because they they needed to figure out, are these people in Toronto? Where are they? How do we sell anything to them? So while we were building that, I started taking contracts on the side with Chancellor, building websites for people who liked our magazine but didn't want to advertise in it. But they said, "What well, I'd like my own web page. And uh, the first person who hired us was uh, a local politician who went on to become a national politician here in Canada named Jack Layton. And um, he hired us to build his political website. And he paid us $500 and $50 a month to maintain it. <laughs> but what happened is more and more people started coming and asking us, if we would build their websites. So that business became quite interesting. And it was a small business. It was, you know, only like, you know, maybe like 15, 17 people at its height, but a couple million dollars in revenue. And during that, as it grew, eventually we had a bunch of people from the client roster start knocking on the door and asking us if we could recommend a really great email marketing application. And after we reviewed the applications that were in the market and we looked at the pricing, we realized we didn't like or want to recommend any of them, but we had it in our head that we could probably build a really great one ourselves. And so we set about to build a product that we would then sell to the clients that we had that were the web clients. Eventually, the email marketing business became so much bigger than the web business that we let the web business go. The email business eventually became 60, 70 people before we sold it. And then we stayed on after we sold it for a couple of years, it eventually became 114 people before we moved on to other things. That's wild. What were some of your biggest lessons learned? Like anything that really challenged you throughout that time? And do you think kind of like shaped you as a person? The first thing that I would take away is that I view crisis as an opportunity. Every time there was a huge crisis in the world were the biggest moments where my business leapt forward and grew significantly. And I had a really great mentor who who taught me that lesson in the middle of the dot-com collapse, took me aside, asked me to read a book, um, asked me to come back in a week and tell him what it meant. And I read the book, read the story. It was a story about the Japanese electronics entrepreneur who built Panasonic and really like the company rocketed into its its, uh, form during the collapse of the Japanese economy. So I had read that book and I went back and talked with him, said that I think this book means that um, this crisis is the biggest opportunity I'll ever have in my life. So we found ways to like understand what those moments of crisis opened up. And then number two, I would say that I didn't have a big network or major community around me when I was in my earliest stages of building my business. In fact, I really knew nobody, right? Like I had that politician, Jack Layton, who became a good friend, and he was my uh, professor at university. But other than knowing Jack, I didn't really know anyone. Both my parents were teachers, as I mentioned. And what I realized very early on was that the fastest way to build my network was by being really, really helpful 
and taking care of a lot of people and helping them out when they were, you know, um, finding their way, their way through their career or finding their way with their own business. As time went on, and we can talk about a couple stories of that if you want, or maybe a story about that. But um, I learned that the more that I put out into the world in terms of helping people and guiding them and spending time with them, it always came back a thousandfold. That's such a huge thing. Like your network really is your net worth. And a lot of people think that you can kind of build that overnight or just like wake up with with a giant network. But it really is about trying to help people along the way and going into like quote unquote networking opportunities without an agenda and really just like seeing how you can bring value and how you can help those people around you, even if there's nothing that they could do to help you. Like that should never be the goal. I'd love to hear one of those stories that jumps to mind for you. The most dramatic one, which is the one that I I love the most, is that in the middle of the dot-com collapse, when so many things were going wrong in the business and we were trying to like figure out how to transition from being that web company we started out as to transition to be an email marketing firm and to burst through and to grow the company to a higher level of clients. Me and Chancellor added up everything that we would owe in the world if the business collapsed and went down. And it was actually somewhere in the neighborhood of $2 million when we were 32 years old that we would owe. And um, we were trying to figure out how to get the biggest email marketing account in the country, uh, which at the time was with Aeroplan, the, the loyalty program. And so while we were trying to figure this out, how to deal with this like terrible looming number over our head and the economy was in a tough spot. And one day I got a phone call and it was from one of our web clients. And he called and he said, look, hey, we have a friend and he's just moved here from Winnipeg. He's all alone. He doesn't know anyone in the city. He, he'd got a job with one of the television networks in the digital space. And he's just been laid off only like six or eight weeks after arriving. He doesn't know anybody. You are in the digital space because you do our website. Could you meet with them and help them out? And I remember being in that moment and thinking that, you know, man, like, could the universe send me like Aeroplan and stop sending me people to help? <laughs> right. Like I had like a selfish thought in that moment. Right. Like, you know, stop sending me like people that uh, that need me to help them out. And for once, just send me the person that I need. In that moment, I paused and I and I, wait, I thought about it. And then I said, tell him if he, if he wants to come in on Thursday morning at seven in the morning, I'll come in early to the office and I'll meet with them and send me his resume ahead of time. This is pre LinkedIn. I'll make a list of people that he can go and like. Um, we'll meet with them based on my word saying that they should give him some time and I'll make a list of events pre-event bright so like here's a list of events and places that he can go and check out to network and I spent two hours with him that morning and uh, really helped him rethink how he was positioning himself and what he was doing and he went on his way and I went on my way and and I went back to figuring out how can I keep the two million dollars off my head and how can I find my way to Aeroplan and building the company and transitioning it to what it was going to become and about three months later, I got a phone call. I was sitting at my desk, picked up the phone, and he says, uh, hey, Chris, it's Sean. I just wanted to call and say thank you. When I was down on my luck, you were the only guy who was there for me and my family. I've just got my new job. I'm moving to Montreal. I'm the new webmaster at Aeroplan, and I'm never going to forget what you did for <laughs> That's me. That's unbelievable. He did not even know that that was my account that I had identified would be the account that would rocket the company. I said, congratulations, Sean. And uh, yes, let's stay in touch. And three months after that, his boss, Remy LaFrance, the head of IT at that time for Aeroplan, 
called and said, um, hey, Chris, I was in a staff meeting today and I asked everyone, does anyone know a really good Canadian email company that we can work with? And uh, Sean put up his hand and said, there's this company in Toronto called Thin Data, and I really think you should bring them to Montreal and talk to them. And we did. And we won that account. And that account not only became Aeroplan, it also wound up including Air Canada as well. And we got a double giant account. And then the business went from 17, 20 people to 70 on a three, four year run. And the Aeroplan account was the central piece. And so that is like a recurring theme. I could tell you 10 stories of major, major moments in my life that center around having helped someone and then had a door suddenly be unlocked. That was the exact door that was required for the next stage of my journey. I love that. And I'm, I'm such a big believer in that as well, just the power of manifesting and, you know, the power of the universe is as cheesy as it sounds. I don't I don't think it's, you know, like some kind of magical woo woo thing. But I, I do think that, you know, if you have a goal in your mind and you're you're open to different opportunities, the universe does sort of conspire to help you. So let's jump into Schulich. I'm really excited to talk about this next chapter of your career and your life. So right now you're serving as the first ever executive director of the Office of Innovation and Entrepreneurship at the Schulich School of Business. So what drew you to Schulich? I'm really interested in how your journey actually started there, given that you were a journalism major, no affiliation with, you know, the, a business university and you were an entrepreneur. How did you get started with Schulich and what drew you to it? I think you'll see a, like a theme as we go along the story where I always get bored really easily and I like to have many different things to work on as we've said at the same time. So while I was working after I sold the business eventually, FinData, then I was working on different companies, getting different things set up with some friends, some new businesses, investing in different companies. But I was really finding, you know, I was, I was still craving more stuff to work on and to do. And one day I got invited to go up and speak and tell the story of our acquisition in the mergers and acquisitions class of Graham Deans, who is one of the most popular and amazing professors at, at Schulich. And that's because, and these things are all connected together, Graham Deans' wife, Julia, worked for and was the key leader at the right hand of David Pico with the Boston Consulting Group. So she knew my story. She had recommended to Graham that he bring me in. I went into the class. I got to speak to the class and hang out in that way with students for the first time. And I just loved it. Now they followed up and connected afterwards, and they invited me back a few times. And eventually, they asked if I would come in and coach some of the students at the Career Center who wanted to make companies because they didn't have a coach in the Career Center who could focus on making a job versus getting a job. And so I said, yeah, I'll do that. So I would go up like once a month and hang out at the Career Center and, and, and help out. And eventually, that was my favorite part of every month. I would look so forward to going up there and meeting with the students and talking to them about their business ideas and their companies. And eventually I said to my family and said to some of the people I was working with, I think I'm going to change my whole career. I have an idea for what it's going to be. I'm not quite going to be a professor and I'm not quite going to be an administrator, but I'm going to be this like thing that is going to work with all these students and help them like transform their lives and their careers and build companies and create this like really amazing community that I've got in my head. 
but there's no job there yet, but there will be. So I went and I would go for four, four of the five days of a week and I would sit in the cafe area, the marketplace, and I started building the community with me and my laptop sitting there with the students and alumni coming in and you and I met there many times and I had no office and I had no staff and I had no salary. There was a little honorarium that they gave me for doing my coaching once a month, but I didn't have a job and I didn't have a title. And I figured that if I built something really, really cool, that eventually the dean would notice and uh, would want to meet with me. And then eventually when he would meet with me, then I would explain what I was building um, sitting in the cafe. And it would become so, so big and so interesting that he would buy into the notion of uh, formalizing it. Eventually, he asked if I would do it for 10 days a month in an official capacity. And after 45 days of me doing it for 10 days a month, he said, this is amazing. I love what you've accomplished. You've gone faster in 45 days than some people might've gone in eight years. So would you consider working for 15 days? And I said yes to that. And then after a year of doing that, he asked if I would come and work full-time at the school and make that my commitment. And then eventually they turned it into a full-fledged Office of Innovation and Entrepreneurship, and now I have a team in a more formal formal role, and I also work with the office of the president at York University as well too, um, helping on various strategic entrepreneurial initiatives all across the campus with many different schools and within the community of York Region. That's so amazing! I'm always blown away when I hear the story, and it just like it shows so much grit and just like belief in something that could be at a very, you know, what I think what a lot of people would think is a very traditional business school. As you mentioned, I'm an alumni. I graduated in 2012 and entrepreneurship was barely a thing at the time that I was at the school. You know, you were really pushed towards if you're specializing in accounting or finance to really like go pursue an opportunity at one of the big four banks here in Canada, or if you were pursuing marketing, which was a pretty small cohort of people at the school, you were really pushed towards consumer packaged goods and, you know, starting your career at a place like Johnson & Johnson or P&G, you know, like a, a really massive company. There was not a lot of entrepreneurship at the time. So it's really incredible incredible that you had this vision that the school could do so much better with that and you made it happen. What I was really drawn to was as I talked with many of the entrepreneurs who had graduated from the school who were at the school is that there wasn't that sense that they had a thing that they belonged to, that there was a community there for them, that they felt sometimes alone, that they felt like they were an outsider inside the school because they weren't going down a traditional path. And as opposed to seeing that as like a negative or something insurmountable, my entrepreneurial heart said that that is an incredible opportunity because if I could just rally and forge those people together into a unified group, they would be so passionate and so incredible in terms of um, uh, rallying behind not only each other, but behind the next wave of young entrepreneurs because they would want there to be something at the school that was incredible and the number of entrepreneurs now that are that are seasoned entrepreneurs that have now returned to become part of this community we call it the Schulich startups community at the school who say to me i wish this was here when i was at school but the great part is is that uh, now they're part of building it and they're part of uh, actualizing it 
I can attest to that. You're the person that looped me back into Schulich. I graduated in 2012, and I don't think I even went back to visit until I think 2018 when when you reached out on LinkedIn to get me on a panel that you were running. And next thing I I knew, I was volunteering with your team and and helping you through some of the strategy and the social. And it's been such an exciting opportunity and such a great way to kind of get reimmersed in the school. So what does your role involve? Or I should say, like, what's a typical day like? And I'm sure there's not a typical day, but what are what are some of the, your biggest initiatives right now? You know, on the baseline is that there's now about 150 student or alumni entrepreneurs that we're working with, supporting, available to them whenever they need us uh, in a moment of crisis or opportunity. And I think they really value the fact that they've got someone who has been a founder is extremely founder first minded and how they view fundraising and clients and staffing and all these things. And, and I'm just love it so much that I'm, I'm available all the time. So there's that personal part and piece that's there. But since then, it's really grown to be a couple things. So there's like a whole set of community events and initiatives that add a ton of value to people. And we try to be really creative about how we make things that are different and stand out. So again, with a lot of support, like, uh, you know, there's uh, one of my really important colleagues and an alumni that we both know, Vito Giovanetti, who's the founder of a company called Treasured, has brought a really interesting concept into the mix that we call the Schulich Idea Jam, where we get people from the community to come out. We have students, we have alumni, we have um, supporters that are from outside of Schulich that are experts in different categories and fields. And we get together and we take two young startups that have a lot of questions and a lot of things to deal with. And we kind of do like, a, you know, the old concept of a barnstorming where people get together and build the barn after it burned down together. So we do that for a startup. You know, another example of something that's a micro piece within our events that has become a signature for what we do to show you the level of engagement and, uh, and connection is that when we have a VIP come in, when we get to the end of the night and uh, they've shared their story with us and shared all their insights, a lot of people would wrap up the event by the host standing up and giving a big dramatic thank you to the VIP, to the guest. But we actually do something where we crowdsource the thank you. So we go around the room and in you know when it was pre-COVID, people stand up one after another. Now it's people coming on video on Zoom one after another. And they actually will leave the speaker with a thought related to the main insight or value that they're taking away and how this has affected them in their journey and how grateful they are for them coming and speaking. And we'll go 15 people deep doing that. And I can tell you it makes a dramatic impact on the speaker and the guest. And the students and the alumni are all participating and giving back to that person. And you know what? Those VIPs that come in and hang out with us and are part of the community, the next time they get asked out there in the community, hey, I got invited to do the Schulich VIP, they'll say, oh man, you got to go do the Schulich VIP. 
I've seen it in action at one of the virtual events and it was it was really something very magical. Like it's not something that you typically see at a virtual event and especially if you're speaking or giving a keynote at a virtual event that could feel like you're almost speaking into a void, but to be able to connect like that face to face with, you know, people who were just listening to your message and to hear how it impacted them and how it made a difference in their thinking, it's so rewarding and I think it's something that's very unique. I haven't seen a lot of other communities or virtual events do that. I think a very unique experience that we both shared and not a very fortunate experience is that we had massive events planned on March 12th, the day after COVID was declared a global pandemic. You had the Schulich Startup Night. I had the three-year anniversary uh, for Fuck Up Nights Toronto. And, you know, it was just like a wild week of figuring out, you know, does it make sense to to still have this event on? And both made the decision that it, there, there was no choice but, but to cancel these events. Can you tell me a little bit about what Schulich Startup Night is and, you know, how that sort of kicked 2020 into gear or the crisis of 2020 into gear for you? Between the two of us, we almost had, almost had close to a thousand people who we were going to be engaged yeah. with. <laughs> so um, yes, the Schulich Startup Night is our primary competition where the alumni startups and the student startups get to come together and compete for the championship title. They do it twice a year with uh, prizing and, and judging and reviews. It started off as a um, an event that happened in a boardroom with one of my companies downtown and was like 30 people who showed up for it. The next time we did it, it was like 70 and all of a sudden it was 100 and then it was 160 and then it was 200. And then it was actually got so big that we were struggling to to find where we would put it. And so we brought it back on campus to the school. And eventually we got to the point where the biggest registration count that we had ever had we had 640 people that were coming on March 12th <laughs> to the Schulich Startup Night. Well, um, it was only, you know, that week that I think everybody really started to slowly comprehend what was actually happening and the severity of it and how real it was and how it was going to affect all of us. And I, I give Dean Horvath, now Dean Emeritus Horvath, credit for recognizing very early on that he was going to put the responsibility of caring for the students and caring for the community and caring for people and their health first and foremost. And he started really prepping me that, you know, it looks like we're going to have to cancel this thing. So yeah, and you remember, I know you and I talked right around that point in time, you had your own situation, you had to make the brave decision on your part to put your community first and to cancel that event. And we both did that. And, I, and I'm sure we had a moment where we walked away from that and thought, what's going to happen now? Like now looking back, it was such an obvious decision and there, you know, there was, there's no way that we could have hosted it. But, you know, March 11th, it was still like an event of that size. There was nothing saying that you had to cancel it. At the time, it was like hundreds of thousands of people conferences that were being canceled, an event of, you know, 600 or so people. We weren't sure yet. It was very much in a gray area, but, you know, really grateful that we definitely both made the right decision there. But I know that was sort of the start of, you know, just like the, the crisis that that came. So tell me a little bit about how you viewed things and how you ended up pivoting through the challenges of 2020 and those those initiatives that you mentioned that really helped you grow. As I mentioned before, I learned when piloting my business that crisis is an opportunity. And that's how I view it. This is a health crisis and obviously has a huge human impact and, and uh, a lot of suffering that's gone along with it. So I, I say this while fully acknowledging the impact uh, that is made on so many lives around the world. But 
simply putting on my entrepreneurial cap for the moment, um, I knew that it was going to be a significant opportunity to build interesting and creative models, transform different parts of what we were doing, and also to use our entrepreneurial spirit to help people. So there were two things that came to mind right away. And uh, I called the team together onto a Zoom session, probably it was like four or five days in. And um, I'd had a conversation with uh, the dean at the time, uh, Dean Horvath, as well. And we were thinking, like, what can we do to help the small business community um, in this time of crisis? And at the same time, I'd been hearing from the students that their co-op placements and their internships and their summer jobs were all being canceled, right? Or, um, or postponed uh, because the whole business world was going into crisis state. So we got on the phone that night with the team and we have a very small team, a couple students and, and, uh, and alumni that we work with. And, um, we said a couple things like, Hey, let's come up with a bunch of ideas that will help us to, um, get out there and make an impact for people that are going to be in a hard place as a result of what's happening right now. And number two, wouldn't it be the coolest story in the history of the school if in the middle of an economic free fall collapse in 30 days, we created a hundred paid jobs for students that didn't exist before this phone call. And like some of the greatest things in life that we've ever done or I've ever done start with like outrageous statements like that, you know, it's <laughs> just like that kind of like, what if this happened? What? And for me, I guess it's because it's my, my journalism degree by training, I almost, I see it as stories like, wow, that would be a great story if we did something like that. And so we came up with um, a concept, which was that um, small businesses, small business retailers, main street, physical retailers were going to be in a really hard spot. Because if we imagined what was going to happen with the crisis, we'd just gone through our own event being shut down, that all these businesses were going to be like on hold. And if they're all on hold, then they're going to have to go digital and they're going to have to go digital fast and they're going to have to go e-commerce fast. And so we started, we got on the phone, we called the city of Toronto. We found one of my key contacts there, a gentleman named Chris Rickett. And uh, he was thinking the same thing. We called Shopify and talked to them. They were thinking similar things. And so I said to the city and I said to Shopify, Hey, one of the key things you're going to need to do in terms of pulling off the kind of plans that you have and the kinds of creative things we're talking about is you're going to need at least a um, hundred students to uh, actually train the small businesses on what needs to be done. I have the hundred students, right? And from that beginning, we crafted a partnership between the city, between different levels of government, between Shopify. Facebook, Google, Google, MasterCard, all kinds of companies, uh, Microsoft, different companies came on board and um, created the extension of what was a pre-existing program called Digital Main Street run by an organization called TABIA, the Toronto Association of Business Improvement Areas, and long supported by the City of Toronto. And we collectively envisioned together and created what was called the Shop Here program. And the Shop Here program was this mass, fast-paced conversion of all these physical businesses to a new digital reality. And the 100 students got uh, jobs. We were able to um, secure funding to get them all hired. And we had 100 students that otherwise would have been 
sitting at home and having a ruined and lost summer. And instead, we're in the thick of having a purpose in their lives, which is to go and use all of their entrepreneurial and innovation and technical and business skills and compassion that they would have for these small business owners and go into the world and and help them. And oh my goodness, the things that happened as a result of that, the stories that they told me, the small business people in tears when they launched their websites. So I know with the next thing that you're going to talk about, you managed to build a 400-person community in 90 days across two countries. That's absolutely wild. Tell me a little bit about it. If, if someone comes to me with like a challenge which has like an unreasonable timeline with no budget and something that would be an incredible story, I'm like drawn to it like a moth to a flame. <laughs> There's no way I can avoid the opportunity. So um, the uh, startup India came to us and they and they had this idea that would like to do an entrepreneurial uh, boot camp and venture competition for a whole group of young Indian entrepreneurs, uh, students, and they wanted to get it done in December or January. And this is like September. So we said yes, immediately, because it sounded like a, like an incredible opportunity and a real opportunity to test all of the things that we'd been doing so far in the, in the uh, pandemic world around events and around these online idea jams and teaching online and platforms and all like every piece of what we had designed and every piece of the community would actually be tested and challenged in the most incredible way that we could possibly imagine. So what we came back with in terms of a design around this, what was could have just been an event, was instead to build this 400 person community and how it came together was we would take the 100 student Indian entrepreneurs we would take 150 students from the Schulich School of Business and the Lausanne School of Engineering at York University. And those 150 students would be divided up. So every pair of Indian students, which would form a business, would then be supported by three Canadian students. So they'd get these teams of master students and engineering students that would be their team in a box that would be available for them through the boot camp and the competition. You need a piece of research done, we'll get it done for you. You need us to design the next level of your PowerPoint. Don't worry, we'll take care of that for you. You just concentrate on being the founder and we'll concentrate on being the business minds and the engineering minds who have been trained in innovation and trained in startup you know, methodology to help advance where you're going with your concept or your, or your piece. So instead of pitting the Canadian students against the Indian students in some competition, we actually took a big, again, you'll see the themes of what we believe in. We took this and we said, the students in India can own the ideas. The students in India can be the ones who get the benefit of the creation and actually the Indian economy take the benefit of what's created. But we are going to come as the Shulik community and we're here to power you up and we're here to back you up. And so the next piece of what we did was we said, now, what if those student teams had mentors behind them. And every one of those students' teams had a mentor pair. And the mentor pairs were 50 uh, mentors from India and 50 mentors from Canada. And we hand-matched the pairs so that the mentors would be really interesting people that we would think would click together when they got together. And then we matched those pairs onto the teams um, very close to the boot camp 
based on what the ideas were of the students who had been approved in the application process. So we went through the process of literally recruiting 100 mentors across the two countries. And for a month and a half, I met in the middle of the night on India time zone with mentor after mentor after mentor. And then we drew on our community that was both the Shulik alumni, entrepreneurs, but also entrepreneurs who had been coming to all those VIPs and those idea jams and all those different things we had done. And we like brought them in. And so we created this, this, this mentor mix. And then we brought in some really amazing trainers who had been training throughout our community as well, too. What was really interesting is that seeing the uh, young Indian student entrepreneurs and how fast they learned when they had members of our community there with them in the training sessions and then going back to hang out with them after the sessions and think through what to take away and how to apply it to that particular business. And then the mentors from both countries consistently working with them throughout the entire process. And if you could see some of those pitches from the day they arrived on the first day to what they exited with, it's, it's, it's mind-blowingly transformational. We're to the point where, you know, some of the leading venture capitalists who came and to watch the pitches when it was done and to judge, you know, one of them said, words cannot express what has happened here. So then on top of that, we had the idea that we would then also find ways to create some private roundtable sessions and bring together some of the top unicorn founders and sunicorn uh, founders and leaders from both ecosystems and have them meet and get together and start to think about ways that the two countries could work more closely together and, and come up with some joint projects. And some of those joint projects uh, with the support of Startup India and then some of members of our team are already unfolding now behind the scenes just a couple of weeks after the event is completed. That's incredible. How are you keeping these people engaged and these community members engaged? You know, it's outside of these big initiatives and big events that sort of happen. How is the conversation sort of continuing throughout and how are they helping each other? I think the answer there lies into the fact that we've designed continuous cycles of, of value into so many things that we've built, right? So for example, let's say that you're a founder within the Toronto ecosystem here. Well, you might have your first experience with our community by hosting an idea jam, right? Whether you host it virtually or host it in person at your, at your organization. And then you might have the opportunity to come in and be like a, a VIP speaker. And then I say, hey, by the way, we've got these placement programs and we'd love to give you a, uh, an incredible student to work with. And now suddenly you've taken a Schulich student into your company and you're working with them and guiding them and mentoring them. We've designed them all to be like exchanges of value where the students win, but also the founder and the companies that we're working with and connecting into the community win. I think something really interesting about your role and something that definitely really helps you achieve success is that you're building strategic partnerships on campus and across the startup and innovation community in really unique ways. And I think you bring such a such a special touch to it. So throughout your journey, your career and your entrepreneurial journey, what have you found to be the most effective in creating these types of partnerships? It's creating experiences that the that the partners fall in love with and and want to actually participate. 
we're looking for partners who are inspired, who want to have fun, who want to hang out with these entrepreneurs and want to like imagine new things to, together and create new stuff and make an impact in the world, right? And and so we've attracted organizations like that and the senior leaders in those organizations, they want to come to the idea jam, right? They want to come, like we call them up and we're like, hey, we're having this session and we've got a company and we're going to attempt to go through a process in a two-hour period where we rename the company, right? And we're going to do it all virtually online on Zoom. And we're going to get together and we're going to figure that out. Would you want to come hang out and do it? And they're like, yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. You know, one of the senior people and one of our key partners supporting the community came out of the, we call it the name storming, we call it the name storming version of Idea Jam and said that it was that wrote me afterwards on LinkedIn and said, that was the most fun I have had online since the pandemic started. I right? love that. Yeah. So I think that has been a key thing, like really creating something. And, and what I would say is that that's been a maybe a hidden opportunity inside some of these things that people haven't realized. Like back when we were doing physical events, and you might have a, a really cool partner that's taking care of what you're doing, but they have to convince someone high up in the organization that this is a good thing to be involved with. And then they, you know, they write a, you know, a check and they get a partnership agreement, whatever. Maybe the person who's in charge of all that never actually even comes out, right? Or maybe they come out like once a year because they have to come out to a physical event and they have a million other responsibilities. The ability now to have senior people hang out with you for an hour or an hour and a half in this world, in this Zoom world, is incredible. So design experiences that have the president of the organization or the founder of the organization asking, when's the next idea jam? That's such fantastic advice. And I think, you know, a, a lot of communities have really struggled with this and have lost some of their partners that were really engaged with their in-person events. And I think you, you make it sound so, so easy and so simple, but it, it really can be if you kind of put yourself in the shoes of, of the partner and really try to think outside of the box with how can you co-create an experience with them and how can you really immerse them into it. You can do some really cool things with virtual events. So thank you for sharing that. So before we jump into your personal community, just want to get your thoughts on uh, your vision for the future of Shulik. Like what gets you up in the morning? What are you most excited about? And of course, how does community fit into all of this? It was a very interesting puzzle for me to play with because when I went and joined Shulik, although there were some really amazing people and professors who I met right away um, to get to work with and were very supportive in helping me out to get my footing and, and figure things out. There were a lot of people within the entrepreneurial space who were saying to me like, Chris, what are you doing? Are you crazy? Why would you go to academia? Why would you go and hang out at a university? Like that is like the opposite. It's going to drive you nuts, right? And it's not going to happen. But the way I viewed it was that this is a more fascinating puzzle because it's a puzzle I've never tried. And it's a puzzle that everyone's telling me cannot be like actually transformed it cannot be solved right and that um it will go slow and i thought well that's going to test every skill and every ability i have to find a way to actually solve the puzzle and have it solved faster than most people think and so 
that's what keeps me jumping out of bed every day to go and like work on that puzzle and solve it. And it's not that it's a broken thing. It's that it's a thing that is in a state of rapid and intense transformation, not only because of the world of remote and digital based, you know, education that we've been fast forwarded into. It's because young people are going to force a transformation of education because they are now entering their undergrad as technologists, marketers who have their own side gigs. They are like incredible triple hybrid characters who get all these different pieces of the puzzle and they're going to need a different type of education and a different type of uh, skills development and a different type of teaching over time. That's amazing. I mean, what an exciting mission and I couldn't think of a better person to lead it. So I want to jump into your personal community. I think it's really fascinating how people like yourself who are mobilizing these massive communities and, you know, bringing all these people together, how you navigate your personal community. So I'm really curious, what are you like outside of all of this? You know, when you when you put your shoe like hat away, what are you like at home? And, you know, what communities are you part of? As you know, I have four kids and they're 15 and 13 and 10 and uh, six years old. And so I have this like swirling tornado of uh, children that are in my life and and a whole variety of uh, incredible moments. So they are a lot of my uh, a lot of my energy and a lot of my time. You know, a, a lot of people like find it really hard to um, to believe and understand because they see me communicating and building this vibrant network and ready to go and talk to anybody in the world and. Um, if you saw me at like an event, you would see me like, you know, surrounded by people and everyone wants to hang out and spend time and to talk and engage. And I love those conversations. But the minute I can get away from that, I really like to be uh, alone. <laughs> uh, and maybe people could understand that because if, if like, if that's what I'm doing all day long is communicating, engaging and, and like, you know, taking people and uh, winding them up and rallying them somewhere, I, I really do like to, outside of being wild and crazy with my children, I like to be much more quiet and uh, by myself or those friends that I have are very few and um, they're a very particular type of person. That's very cool. I think that's a, that's actually been quite a common theme throughout this podcast. A lot of the guests that I've interviewed, you would assume that they're the most extroverted person out there, just the way that they're bringing their community to life, like myself included with Fuck Up Nights, I think a lot of people have a very different assumption of, of who I am than, you know, how I actually am at home. I'm very introverted for sure. But I, you know, I think a lot of people find that surprising. So it's definitely a big theme. So with those people that you mentioned, the people that you really like choose to, to spend your time with and really let into your inner circle, do you feel like you look for certain qualities in those people? Are you pretty intentional about how you choose them or is it a little bit more organic? It's pretty intentional. And I really, I'm, I'm really drawn to people who are a combination of certain things. But as you might imagine, I really don't like to be inside any particular box, even into in terms of who I am myself, right? So I, I need people who are very like open-minded. I, I like people who are like, you know, as, a, as entrepreneurial as I am, who are very adventurous and aren't going to like look down on anything or look at any other thing as being too 
for up in the world, like can just take it all in and, and appreciate it all, all at the same time. And then the other thing is that I'm very thoughtful about my words and I'm very thoughtful about the words that people use. And I'm very thoughtful about the power of words and thoughts as it relates to groups of people in the world that are more vulnerable and disadvantaged. I really prefer to hang out with people who are progressive minded and thinking about the world and how it's how it's changing and what it could be and that we all have a place and responsibility within that. And at the same time, I love talking about business, right? So I need to find people who are like really into business, right? And entrepreneurship, but also like super progressive and ready to like tear things down and cause a revolution at the same time as they're comfortable going to the ballet and then the next night going to an underground indie professional wrestling event. So maybe this explains why I'm often alone. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. I I think it's so awesome to have such diverse interests and to really kind of like shape your community around that. My last question for you is, and I ask this of everybody on the podcast, what does the word community mean to you? It's the heartbeat and the energy inside any mission that you're on, any dream that you have, any like possibility that you're envisioning. I was the kid back in high school, even before when we described the beginnings of things that used to sit and like draw diagrams of like groups and teams of like superheroes who would all team up together and what their base looked like and what their <laughs> what their ships would be and how they would all go together and like, you know, designing my own Avengers, right? So I just love the idea of like the energy that comes from people teaming up together and believing in something and going to get something done. I think it is one of the most magical things in the in the world when you see something like that coming together and you you really like play with that and create things out of it. So that's what community is to me is it's that that magic combination of people that are like seemingly random on the surface but somehow have come together to uh, believe in or or build something and then you see it and it all comes to life. I love that. What a fun definition. Awesome. Chris, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me. I learned so much as I always do from you. Thank you, Marcia. I had a lot of fun. I had such a great time chatting with Chris and I hope you learned as much as I did from this episode. The best place to connect with Chris is on LinkedIn. Just search for Chris Carter. And for all things entrepreneurship at Schulich, follow along with at Schulich Startups on Instagram. Thanks for tuning in to Create Community, a podcast where I chat with incredible community builders to define what community truly means. You can check out the series on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you normally listen. Please remember to subscribe and leave us a rating and review. I'd really love to hear your feedback. You can also follow us on Instagram at createcommunitypod or check out our website at createcommunitypod.com for updates. Once again, I'm Marsha Drucker, your host, signing off. A huge thank you to Origins Media House for producing this series. You can find them at originsmediahouse.com, where house is spelled H-A-U-S, or on LinkedIn and Instagram at Origins Media House and Twitter at Origins Media.